we are in a series on the prophet Elijah out of the Old Testament. Today we're in 1 Kings chapter 19, and the title is simply this, Burning the Yokes. Now, if you think that title, Burning the Yokes, has something to do with a breakfast disaster, I want you to think again. We have to go back a long way in American history to find the yoke as a common, ordinary farm implement. And as a matter of fact, it was in the early 1800s, the last time you probably saw a team of oxen in, on an American farm with a plow behind it. Now, there's a, there's a reason for that. Oxen were good at plodding. They had a slow and steady pace. And as I understand it, uh, it took three people to work a team of oxen plowing in the field. Uh, one person to guide the oxen in the field, another person to hold and steer the plow, and the third person was to scour the blade, the iron blade or the wooden blade of the plow because the prairie sod would stick and gum up on, on the, play, uh, the plow blade. And so it was a very slow and arduous process. Then in 1837, a blacksmith from Illinois by the name of John Deere developed a steel plow blade that the soil would just simply roll off of the blade into a nice furrow. Then it was, then you could add horses uh, and you could add mules to the team, which could plow a lot faster, and a single person could do it on their own. And by that time, uh, a man, a farmer, could plow a, uh, a field of seven acres every day. So it was probably one of the most advanced pieces of technology in 1837. Today, we no longer see oxen plowing in American fields, but in this day and time, when we are in the story of Elijah, this is the best technology of the day, and it is very integral to the story that we're about to see. Elijah, in chapter, six, chapter 19, verse 19, is on his way back from the mountain of Horb. And this is what we read. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Now, Elijah had fled the area, if you recall, because he was so disheartened and discouraged by Jezebel's threat on his life, that he went to the mountain of God, Mount Horb or Mount Sinai, whichever you want to call it. And last week, we talked about several of the reasons for his discouragement, but we didn't have time to explore one of those details that was very much a critical part of his discouragement, his feeling of aloneness. Now, I don't know who came up with this. When I found it years ago, it was, it was at least attributed to somebody anonymously, but it is an acrostic. And, and it is the acrostic word halt, H-A-L-T. Avoid being hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. If you want to avoid discouragement, if you want to avoid depression, avoid hunger, anger, loneliness, and tiredness. Now, Elijah was all of these. He had been physically drained. He was angry and fearful and vented with God. He was spiritually and emotionally exhausted. And during this time when he journeyed through the wilderness and he made it to the mountain, God dealt with all of that. God gave him rest. The angel prepared him food. God gave him a fresh encounter with himself. And then God sent him back with a job to do. But the one thing we didn't talk about last week was the fact that Elijah was really lonely. As a matter of fact, one of his complaints to God was, I'm all you've got, Lord. I'm the only one that's left. Now, I found out later in the conversation with God that there were 7,000 who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal in Israel. But at the moment, he was so lonely, he thought he was the only faithful one. 
But God has a plan, and it's to fix this loneliness. As Elijah comes back into the area, comes across this farm in the Jordan Valley, he finds a young man plowing that God has chosen to become his successor. The young man's name is Elisha. And he will turn out to be quite the contrast with his prophetic predecessor. The two become devoted friends. They look to the future service in the kingdom of Israel and to following God's lead. Elisha was just the right student and assistant to come alongside of Elijah. But they are totally different. They they are not alike in in hardly any way. Let, Let me give you some of the contrast between these two great prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah's name is suggestive of the law. His name means Jehovah, my God. But Elisha's name speaks of grace, Jehovah, my Savior. Elijah was a prophet of the wilderness. Elisha was a prince of the court. Elijah's ministry was more prophetic than miraculous. Elisha's work was more miraculous than prophetic. Elijah was a messenger of judgment. Elisha was a messenger of mercy. Elijah was fierce and fiery and energetic. Elisha was gentle, sympathetic, and simple. Elijah was sort of a solitary figure. Elisha was very social. Elijah had an extraordinary departure from this world. Elisha, he died in an ordinary way just like the rest of us. Now, I don't know what that, how that strikes you this morning, but I am very grateful for the contrast of these two great Old Testament prophets. Once again, we are reminded that God can and will use anyone in his work. He is not relegated to some cookie cutter design when it comes to leadership or servanthood. The great men and women of the Bible covered a broad spectrum of personalities and talents. And aren't you glad? Wouldn't it be awful If God had only one particular perspective on leadership, if God could only use one particular set of talents, and what if none of us in this room rose to those levels of use? We'd all be sitting here thinking, I'm not important in the kingdom of God. I don't matter in the kingdom of God. God can't use me in the kingdom of God. Now, if you're like me, you'll have to admit there are times in life when I wish everyone thought and reasoned like I do. It'd make life a whole lot easier if everybody thought like I did and reasoned like I did. Make decision-making a lot easier, too. But I don't think that very often, and I don't think about it very long, because I realize that I am a better person when I'm confronted by people who think differently than I do. If everybody was just like me, this place would be really boring and really ineffective. It's It's that contrast in personalities and gifts and talents that makes us a team together to be used in the kingdom of God. It is the variety of personality and talents that makes the, work, that makes the church work. And, and God is a God of variety. One of the things I love about Southern Indiana in the springtime is this just beautiful variety of flowering trees and shrubs. I mean, do, do you pay attention when spring comes? You've got well, you've got flowering crab apples and dogwoods and red buds and azaleas and rhododendron. And the thing about it is they're all different shapes and sizes and colors and fragrances. And you watch and they, they don't all bloom at the same time. One finishes its bloom and then something else comes into bloom and then something else comes into bloom. You know, when God created this world, he could have made all the blossoms a dull brown, but he didn't. He could have made them all blossom at the same time and it would be one explosion of color and then it would all be over. But he didn't. 
God loves variety. He spaced out all of these things in this beautiful part of the country so that we could enjoy springtime and the flowers and the blooms for a long time because that's the creative genius of our God. I'm telling you, God loves variety in his people as well. So there is no excuse that you can give me this morning that will satisfy. Think you're too old? Hey, Moses was 80 when God sent him back into Egypt to lead the Israelites out of slavery. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. I bet she got the Mother's Day flower at church that year. What do you think? (laughs) Noah was 600 when he laid down his hammer and entered the ark. Think you're too old? Think again. Think you're too young. Samuel was barely more than a toddler when his mother Hannah entrusted his life to God's service at the tabernacle. David was was a late teen or maybe an early 20-something shepherd when he went up against a battle-hardened giant whose name was Goliath and defeated him. Mary. Mary was a mere teenager when the angel Gabriel said, you are going to give birth to the Son of God. Think you're too young? Think again. Think you're too damaged? You've done too many things wrong. God couldn't use you. (laughs) Noah got drunk after the first harvest following the flood. Abraham lied twice about his wife, Sarah. Moses murdered an Egyptian. David committed adultery and then had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. Rahab got her start as a prostitute. Tamar seduced her father-in-law. Peter denied that he even knew Jesus Paul persecuted the church and Christians. Do I need to go on? God uses the whole and the broken, the attractive and the plain, the elite and the ordinary, the skilled and the untrained, the educated and the experienced. The list is endless. You have no excuse. God loves variety and will use every one of us as partners with him in this great work. Now, had you asked Elijah... When he had come in off the mountaintop, what kind of a friend he would have said, probably somebody just like me. Somebody that thinks like me, somebody that looks like me, somebody that acts like me. Because that's our first response, remember? But God knew Elijah didn't need somebody just like him. He needed somebody that could be a compliment to him. By the way, God didn't need another Elijah either. God needed somebody that would be a contrast to Elijah for this next chapter of ministry. Now, we focused on their differences, and those differences that come alongside really did encourage each of them, but but hear me out. When it comes to the important matters, that's where there must be unity. Ethical values, moral principles, commitment to God. Opposites may attract, and opposites can be really good for us. But there's one place where you need to have some things in common. Ethics, morals, and commitment to God. Make sure you are not partnered up. Make sure you are not yoked up with somebody who does not share your ethics, morals, and commitment to God. You see, loneliness can be a devastating problem at any age of life. Elijah, in his loneliness thought the world had abandoned him. According to studies, the 10-year period most likely for people to commit suicide is between the ages of 75 
and 84. And the reason that is so high is because at that age category, a lot of people start to feel alone. During World War II, Nazi prison camps determined that solitary confinement was the most effective means of securing information after only a few days of complete isolation. Many soldiers were willing to tell all that they knew. It all goes to the loneliness factor. Authors Minrith and Meyer suggest that there are three basic needs for all human beings. One is self-worth. The other two have to do with loneliness, intimacy with others, and intimacy with God. Now, any one of those missing in the equation can bring about loneliness, but any two will really put us in the dumps. A few years ago, an English publication offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. And among the thousands of answers received, there were some really good ones. Here, here was one. One who multiplies joys and divides griefs. Uh, another one. A volume of sympathy wrapped up in cloth. But the prize winner was this. A friend is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. That describes Elisha. Elijah thought the whole world had gone out and enters Elisha into his life. He was a friend who stepped in when nobody else did. Now, this is going to sound like a broken record, but I don't care. I'm going to say it to you anyway. This is exactly why God established the church. Because in our lives, he knew that we would be in contrast with the world and that the world would step away from us at times and that we would feel lonely. So if he gave us his body, the church, we have a family who steps in during the times when the rest of the world steps out. That's also why life groups are so incredibly important here because it is a smaller group inside this larger family that really becomes intimate with us. They know who we are. They know what makes us tick. They help us, and they are always the first ones to step forward when something happens in your life. When the world steps away from you, they're the ones that step into your life and make a difference. So I'm, I'm telling you, God's, God knew what this problem would be in our life and made provision for it. Consider what a friend can do. A friend is one who provides honest encouragement when we need it. A friend is also one who keeps us on the straight and narrow. But sometimes what we need is somebody just to come along and encourage us. Henry Ford tells about how much a friend meant to him years ago. He was just starting out in the automotive industry. He had a lot of failures along the way. He had a new idea for a, for a Ford engine. And he's sitting at a dinner table. And he's kind of drawing this out on a napkin. And he's talking to people, some of whom were just not interested at all. But there was a guy down at the table who was leaning into the conversation and trying to listen because he couldn't hear very well. And finally, he moved up and sat next to Ford, looked at the description and the, uh, what he had drawn on the napkin, and finally just pounded his fist on the table, which scared everybody around him, and said, young man, that's it. You have got it. That man's name was Thomas Edison. And it was at that point in time that Thomas Edison and Henry Ford became the best of friends. Henry Ford later said, that thump of the fist on the table was worth the whole world to me. All he needed was just a bit of encouragement that, that's one of the blessings of friendship. It brings encouragement. And you might be thinking, boy, I wish I had a friend like that. Let me suggest you tweak your thinking. Why don't you see if you can become a friend like that? Because if you will be a friend like that, you will have friendship like that in your life. 
Elisha's strong relationship with God gave him the capacity to be that kind of a good friend, a good student to Elijah, and one who would come alongside when the rest of the world had stepped away. But the text goes on. That's not the, this, this loneliness factor is not the only thing that we see of value here. There is also this picture of commitment that I don't want you to miss. In verse 19, we read this. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak or his mantle around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? That was just an expression saying, that's fine, go ahead. I'm not, you know, there's no problem. So Elisha went with him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. They had a big party, a great celebration. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant or his assistant or his student or all of the above. This chapter in Elijah's life not only points out our need for others in our lives, but it also provides insight into the concept of genuine commitment. What does it mean to be committed to God? To our non-committal and self-centered culture of the 21st century, the response of this rich young man is inspiring and challenging. And he was rich. You, I mean, most farmers were really blessed or fortunate to have an ox. But if they had a team, if they had a yoke of oxen, they were doing well. Elisha comes from a farm that had 12 yoke of oxen. And when Elijah finds him, he's, he's guiding the 12th team. So they've got other guys, hired hands, that are working the rest of the crops. This is a wealthy, this is a big farm in that day and time. The sacrifice was great. Now, here's, here's what you need to understand. The challenge from God comes at ordinary moments of life. When God has a job to do, it seldom comes when we're sitting around and twiddling our thumbs. Most people, if you ask them, really think that, well, God calls us in our religious moments. God calls us when we're in our pious times. For instance, when we're earnest in prayer, that religious moment God calls us. When we're deep in the study of his word, God calls us. When we're asleep in church, God calls us these <laughs> religious moments of time. But Elisha was out in the field with a team of oxen. He was not fasting and praying. He was sweating and plowing. But then that's the way God works. God may call in our religious moments, but the scriptures would indicate otherwise. Moses was tending sheep when God called. Nehemiah was serving the king his lunch when God called. Amos was taking care of sycamore fig trees. Daniel was walking to his new home in Babylon. Samuel was asleep. Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishing. And Matthew was collecting taxes. Not one was in a religious moment when the challenge went out. What you do best, do it because that may be the time that God uses you most. Do what you do best. That's when God will call. Elisha was in a freshly plowed field. Wherever you are, God will use you there. I guess what I'm trying to say this morning is be available to God every moment of every day. Don't wait for the silent moments. Don't wait for the religious moments. You just be available to God whenever he calls because it will be in the ordinary flow of life. Because I want you to remember this, being available 
is more important than being capable. God was always more concerned about availability than capability. He uses those who are available and makes them capable. So the challenge comes in ordinary moments. But the challenge calls for extraordinary commitment. I just learned this. The first organized land action of the Civil War was on June the 3rd, 1861 at Philippi, Virginia. Now, of course, the, the opening salvo was at Fort Sumter. But, but the first land action, June 3rd, 1861 at Philippi, Virginia. And though most considered to be a skirmish rather than a battle, it was still the first organized effort. As Union troops converged on the small community, Mrs. Thomas Humphreys sent her young son on horseback to warn the Confederate troops. As she watched, she saw Union pickets capture her son, and that's when she drew out a pistol and fired the first shot, giving her, a mother committed to the safety of her child and home, the dubious honor of firing the first volley of the Civil War. No one understands the power of extraordinary commitment to put life on the line like a mother. No one defends a child with greater sacrifice than a mother. If you want a genuine picture of commitment, look at the often thankless but oh-so-vital role of motherhood. Elijah throws his mantle or his cloak over the shoulders of Elisha. It's this invitation to become a committed follower of God. This, this cloak, this hairy garment, this rough mantle that Elijah wore was sort of a, a symbol of his prophetic ministry. Elisha knew what it was. But here's what's really interesting to me. Elijah throws it over his shoulders and just keeps walking. Elijah does not stop and say, you realize what I've just done? Yeah. You understand the sacrifice this is going to require? Well, I'm not sure. Are you ready to step in and, and do the hard stuff, Elisha? Doesn't say anything like that. He just throws the mantle over his shoulders and keeps on walking. God never coerces or twists your arm. He invites. Whether you accept the invitation is up to you. And this is no small invitation, folks. Remember, he is leaving behind a, a, a luxurious life. He's leaving behind a wealthy farm. So what does he do? I mean, that could be a temptation. It's not going to be easy living with Elijah. We've already seen what kind of a character is. If he's going to be a, a, a mentee of him, if he's going to be a follower and a student of him, this is going to require some sacrifice. So what he does is he makes sure he's not tempted to go back to the farm. And he burns the 12 yoke. And he kills the oxen. And they have a big party. It's his way of saying, that's the past. I'm leaving all that behind. I'm moving on. Wow. He left 12 yoke of oxen to go serve the 12 tribes of Israel. What a contrast to Elijah, this rugged man of the hills, compared to this man who had known luxury in his father's household, but he laid it all aside because the call of God is more important than anything else in this life. It took extraordinary commitment on the part of Elisha, and his life is just as worth studying as that of Elijah's commitment. Extraordinary commitment. Could that be said of you this morning in your relationship with the Lord? Author Dallas Willard observed, he said, the Lord is my shepherd is written on many more tombstones than lives. So what exactly is commitment? Well, commitment is a vow or a pledge. As, as in marriage, 
Find a couple who's been married 50 plus years and you will find extraordinary commitment. I I like this anonymous description. A good marriage is like a casserole. Only those responsible for it knows what goes in it. (laughs) But I will tell you this. There is one common ingredient to every long-term marriage, and that is commitment. Commitment is the baseline of the casserole. Commitment is also a sense of duty to our responsibilities. The completion of any task demands my commitment. The task may not be fun or easy or pleasant, but no matter. If it is my responsibility, I must see that it is accomplished. One mother who taught her children commitment this way. Always give 100% unless you're giving blood. (laughs) That's commitment. Always giving 100%. Commitment is loyal and allegiance. Loyalty and allegiance. Once again, it's not about what you have, but rather who you are that matters to God. I think one of the best descriptions of commitment comes from David Livingston, who spent his life as a missionary in Africa. And he wrote home these words, if you have people who will only come to Africa if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men and women who are willing to come if there's no road at all. That's extraordinary commitment. I've always valued the historic picture of commitment in the leadership of Spanish explorer Hernando Cortez who landed at Veracruz on the Gulf of Mexico in the 16th century with 500 men. It was their goal to push all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And so Cortez, after they landed, burned all of the ships in the harbor. It's a little hard to sail back to Spain when your ship lies at the bottom of the bay having been burned. I mean, there's no turning back when you burn the ships. There's no going home when you burn the ships. You have but one thing to do, and that is commitment to the task before you. I've often wondered if Cortez got his idea for burning the ships from Elisha, who burned the yokes. No going back. Just going forward. You see, that, it takes extraordinary commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And, and, and once we have made that decision. There there is no turning back. There's nothing to go back to. Any commitment short of that is not commitment at all. Elisha stepped up and said, I will take that mantle of responsibility and wear it to the end of my days. And he did. What needs to be burned in your life so that you can be 100% committed to Jesus Christ, that you can be yoked to him until the very end of your days.